been journeying through our series, Remarkable. We just have next week, uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 20, and we'll be wrapping up this series until we come back to it next January. Uh, we'll be jumping into the I Am series for Easter in just a couple of weeks. But as you're turning there, uh, it was the start of my third year at college at, again, the greatest university in all the land, the University of Oklahoma. If you haven't learned that yet, I'm trying to brainwash you. Uh, but at the time, I was, I was working uh, at a sports radio station because that was the career path that I was on as a, I guess, about a 20-year-old. And my desire was to be in that field, so I was also interning for the morning radio show called The Morning Animals, and my nickname on the station was called Bacon, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so enjoyed my time there, and I can remember specifically the beginning of that third year of college, going into the radio station about 5.30 a.m., getting everything kind of set, ready to go. I was definitely their gopher and just a typical intern on that show. And I can remember that morning as a couple hours went by, one of our producers turned to me and he said, Bacon, would you go and get something off of the AP wire? And I said, I would absolutely love to do that. And so his name was Lump. And I said, I'd absolutely love to do that. We had interesting names for each other. And so I made my way to the, to the, uh, the printout machine. And as I was, our news director, because there were multiple radio stations on this floor, our news director uh, all of a sudden ran past me and said, someone has flown into the two towers. And I can remember being like, I don't know what you were talking about. Uh, I, I couldn't compute because my mind was thinking at that time of the San Antonio Spurs. And I was thinking of the twin towers of Tim Duncan and David Robinson. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I made my way back into the studio with the information that the guys had requested. And then everything just stopped in that moment because we had TVs in our studio and we were seeing what was un unfurling over the course of the rest of that morning that many of you will vividly recall the moment where you were at when you heard the news on 9-11-2001. It's one of those moments that changed everything. I remember getting on the phone and, and calling my roommates and being like, hey, if you haven't got up yet, you need to get up and you need to turn on the television. And just everything changed from, from that moment. Some of you remember that moment, but have there been other moments in your life where that moment, it just changed everything? Just, just you knew things were going to be different. Maybe it was an event like 9-11. I remember my grandparents, that event was Pearl Harbor. Or when JFK was assassinated, there were certain moments that it just, it changed things. There is a, there is a significant difference from one day to the next. Even for us in 2020, with COVID and everything that happened there, I mean, things just, there was a, there was a difference, there was a change. Maybe if it's not an event, maybe it was a job. A job that you either received or a job that you got let go from. It changed things, or maybe a relationship changed everything in a moment when you had that son or daughter born into your life. It, it changed the dynamic of your family, or when you met that someone and fell in love with who was going to be your spouse, and it just changed everything. There are events and, and jobs and relationships that change us, but can you look back and recognize that at some point in time, you encountered Jesus, the son of the living God, and he changed everything in your life? Or do you look exactly the same as before encountering Jesus? Because if Jesus changes it all, he's the guy who died and came back to life, I would think that upon faith in him, that our lives just look different. There, there's a transformation, there's a change. And so this morning, we're going to see in Acts chapter 19, 
And really, we've seen it all throughout our study in Acts thus far. But Jesus does. He changes everything. And so to begin with, I'm going to read a decent chunk of Scripture. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. It says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism, referring to John the Baptist. And he said, Into, excuse me, verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. And then he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way uh, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish, Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish priest, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known, as I would imagine, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, that's Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a little while. So I've made the comment that Jesus changes everything. And for us to be able to see what's at hand, I now have a pointing stick. And so if we could have the map, please. My in-laws got this for me because they said, you can't be putting a drummer stick up on that screen or just pointing your finger. So they bought this for me, and I'm so excited. So for those of you that haven't been with us, we've been looking at the journeys of Paul, the different missionary journeys. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. And there's just a blip of the description of this third missionary journey starting in what we saw last week. So go back and listen to that one. But whenever he starts this missionary journey, he leaves from Antioch, because that's his home mission church, and he makes his way through Sicilia and then also Galatia. 
This is the third time now that he's journeyed and specifically gone into the area of Galatia for the purpose the first time to start sharing the gospel and churches pop up because when disciples are made, then churches will grow and churches will be formed. So he goes back here the second trip to encourage them. And now he's going through here on his third trip to once again encourage them. On this trip, he has the opportunity before he was denied by God to go into Asia. On, and now this time he's going straight into Asia over here to Ephesus. And as he is in Ephesus, you'll notice that there are quite a few churches that if you've had the opportunity to read some of the New Testament scripture and and even some of the letters that Paul wrote or the book of Revelation, there might be some of these names that you would recognize like Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Laodicea, Colossae. These are some churches that you'll read about in other parts of your scripture. But Paul is camped out here in Ephesus and he's going to be here for about two and a half to three years. It's the longest place that he's going to stay uh, while he's on a missionary journey because he's having really just some incredible success. And so it it starts off, if you go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 19, what we see here is, yes, Jesus changes everything, and it's as simple as this, but as profound as this, because Jesus saves. And and I want to unpack that for a little bit. At the beginning of chapter 19, when Paul shows up into the area of Ephesus, what what happens is he recognizes that there's these guys who are living a good life and seem to be followers of John the Baptist, been baptized, the the John the Baptist baptism of repentance. And they they, they see this and Paul speaks to them and he's like, something's missing. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit. You guys are good guys, and you've lived a good life, and you understand some really good teaching, but, but you've got to recognize that it's Jesus that saves. It's not, it's not that baptism, and it's not John. It's Jesus that's going to save. And so there's three different things that sometimes we get caught up in to think, well, that might be the means of my salvation and my hope. And Paul makes it, I think, crystal clear here and throughout his other letters that he writes that it's Jesus and Jesus alone that transform, saves you, changes everything in your life. So Jesus saves, not John. The followers of John, again, good guys, had faith in the Messiah that is to come, but they didn't realize that that the Messiah had arrived, that the Messiah had lived the life that we couldn't live on our own. He lived a perfect life, that he died the death that we deserve because of our sin and the consequences of our sin is, is death. But Jesus says, I'll go to the cross. I will lay down my life. I will sacrifice my life for you that you might have salvation and hope. And I'm going to prove it by rising from the dead, declaring victory and power over death. When we think of this, sometimes what we, we have is we have a similar situation. If you were with us last week at the end of Acts chapter 18, there was this great speaker and orator named Apollos who was teaching some incredible, incredible truths. But Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, You're teaching well, but let us explain the way or Christianity a little bit more clearer to you, which is Jesus is at the center of it all. And once he hears that, his message changes completely. He's not just teaching about the Old Testament. He's demonstrating that the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament is Jesus. And he's the one that we have to place our faith, our hope, and our life in. What we do at times is, I don't think any of you struggle with the idea that John the Baptist can save you. But these were guys that grew up under the teaching of John the Baptist. 
Sometimes we can get so caught up in a personality or in an institution or in a teaching style and go, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up, I don't know, a Methodist. I grew up a Southern Baptist. I grew up whatever it may be. And those things are good. These good guys. But it's not going to be just because you heard the teaching. It's going to be, did you hear the correct teaching of Jesus? Repent and submit your life to him that you might come to be saved. Because it says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. The other thing that doesn't save us is tongues. Now, we can't go deep dive into this, but sometimes people will read the book of Acts and they'll go, well, you got to have tongues in order to, to be saved. I mean, we see what's going on here. So some people have an idea that tongues is essential for salvation. What we find with the gift of tongues is, again, it's a gift that is given to you after salvation. It's not essential for salvation. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 8, when the gospel goes into Samaria. Acts chapter 10, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. You see tongues included with all of these for the purpose, not of saying, well, you're definitely saved because you have tongues. The point of the gift of tongues, and if we ever lose sight of this, because we get so fascinated with it, we have so many arguments about it. If ever the gift of tongues becomes so confusing that we don't realize that the point of the gift is to point to Jesus, then you've missed the point. Sometimes we want to get all up in arms of what is the gift of tongues and how does it work? I'll tell you this, if it doesn't point to the Savior, then, then it's off. That's the point of the gift of tongues. It was to communicate and to articulate so that people could hear the gospel and be saved. It was to edify the church, not to break it down. Tongues isn't essential for salvation. I wrote this. It's not equivalent to salvation. Rather, it points to the source of salvation. The third thing is baptism. There are a lot of people who read this specific passage and go, baptism is essential for salvation. You got to have it. Well, this is what I would say in rebuttal to that. Is One, we believe that it is, uh, we said this a few weeks ago, you are saved by the grace of God alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only means of salvation. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus baptism. For Jewish guys, it wasn't Jesus plus circumcision. It wasn't any of that kind of thing. It was just Jesus. In faith in him alone, by God's grace, do we have salvation. And so what we find is later on, Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth. We have an idea of where they are now. We've studied them. And, and if, if Paul believed that baptism was necessary for salvation, then Paul would have been baptizing everybody. But listen to what he does. He writes to them and says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And Paul shared the gospel with everybody. And people were getting saved all over Corinth. He says, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's what he was sent for. Baptism is, is, is very important, but it's not essential for salvation. So oftentimes what happens is this. People will go, well, pastor, if it's not essential for salvation, then why do I have to get up in front of everybody and do it? My personality, I'm, a, I'm shy. I don't want to be in front of everybody. Like, I don't really want to get wet. And then I got to... The reason why that we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is because, one, we are commanded to do so. And if he is our Lord and Savior, we want to obey him. 
We also recognize that baptism is really, as a Christian, one of those first opportunities for you to share your faith through symbolism and and a picture. It's that picture, as it says in the book of Romans, that when you are taken under that water, it's that picture of Jesus going into the earth. He died, and he comes back to life. He rose again. He defeated death. For us, it's that when we go into that water, it's that picture that we died to ourselves, and because we are in Christ, we are raised to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful evangelistic picture. But also, especially here, this was their means of a public form of confession of faith. I grew up in a church where oftentimes the public form of confession of faith was I would walk an aisle, talk to my dad was the pastor, talk to dad up here for a little bit and go, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to share that with you. Fantastic. Not a bad thing to do, but the, the, the picture of a public profession where you are unashamed. I will be a, I'll be baptized down by the river. I'll be baptized in a baptistry. Just take me to a pool, but it needs to be public. Sometimes we have this idea of, I want to get baptized, but I want to kind of keep it to myself and just maybe me and a few. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it, we're not trying to make it about you, but it is intended to be public because it means that you are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus. And so in in this day and time, they, would, they didn't have baptistries. They had to go down to the river. And the river was where life was, where the community was. So everybody was like, well, here come those people from the way again. Those guys are crazy. And they're making their way, and they're going to go into the river. And they're... But your, your boss would see that. Your family members would see that. And they would see this picture. And what's beautiful is if you read some of church history, whenever someone would get baptized, the, the idea was they would walk in, uh, the, the, the baptizer and the baptizee, they would walk into the water, they would, they would uh, go through the, through the procedure, they'd baptize them, and then they'd walk out the other side of the bank. And over here was a group of their church family, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it wasn't like, amen, that's great. I'm so glad. Do we get to go you know, to Arby's afterwards, that kind of thing? It was when that guy or gal was walking over to them, they had a change of clothes for them because you are walking in newness of life. You are a new creature in Christ. And they would celebrate and it would cause a lot of attention. And I'm sure that introverted person who got baptized was like, guys, stop it, stop it. But it caused all this attention because we're excited that one went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, that you will no longer be separated from God for eternity, that this is a big deal. And so... Those are reasons why we get baptized. It's a big deal, but it doesn't save you. But just because it doesn't save you doesn't mean that it's still not a big deal. It's still not essential for us to do out of obedience. So the other question might be, well, how? How is it supposed to work? Well, we believe that it's believers' baptism, that we are baptized after we have placed our faith in Christ, that that is the biblical precedent in obedience of being baptized. There are some that I've visited with that they've been baptized, but they had not placed their faith in Jesus. They went through getting wet and going through something that was maybe a big deal to them and to their parents or their grandparents. And I'm not wanting to, 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 to be rude to anything there, but I want to be obedient scripturally and biblically to what does scripture teach of the ordinance of baptism and that we would want to hold it high and lift it up because we want to point to people that it wasn't an infant baptism that saved you. It was Jesus who saved you. And so because he saved me, now I will be baptized. And so my question is, have you been baptized? Believer's baptism. Is your baptism on 
the after side of your faith in Christ. And you say, well, I don't want to get baptized again because that wasn't the case, but it'd be embarrassing. Can I tell you that I've visited with a few that they've made this decision that they've been baptized before, but they said, it wasn't until here that I know that Jesus was Lord and Savior of my life, and I want to be obedient to him, even if it might look weird, even if there might be family members who are wondering, I thought you already were. It's like, no, no, no. I just, I simply want to be obedient because Jesus has commanded me to do so. So maybe for some of you today, that maybe that question is starting to percolate in your mind of, it's not essential for baptism, but have I done it according to scripture? Because it is important. It is a big deal. Now, as we continue on, we see that Jesus changes everything, kind of a 1A, because Jesus saves, we want to share Jesus. What Paul is essentially doing at the beginning of chapter 19 with these followers of John the Baptist is he's having gospel conversations, which is exactly what Dalton was sharing with us this morning and with our ping pong balls. It's the whole point is just to have something that is a visual constant reminder of how we are doing, of that we're not trying to have any kind of competition. We're just saying we want to share our faith and we want to spur one another along. We want to see that, that canister go up because we are being intentional and we're seeing that we aren't just talking about our faith on Sunday, heaven forbid, but we're talking about our faith every day of the week because he is the center of our life. And because Jesus saves me, I'm going to share him. I'm going to talk about him. So those that you live, work, and play with, we identified who those individuals were, those three individuals that are, that are personal to your heart in the month of January. This month in February, We've been asking you to to develop a burden for them, to pray for them over the course of of February. I hope that you have been. It's it's, it's certainly a a tactic of the enemy to want to keep you from praying for them because you got more pressing matters and things to do. As we journey into March, we're going to take it up a notch. I don't want you just to have identified who they are, which you have. I don't want you to just continue to pray for them, which you need to. But now I want you to initiate something with them. Reach out to those that are burdened upon your heart Don't just pray for them, but engage with them, initiate them, schedule something with them. Cup of coffee, supper, a meal, whatever it may be. Because it's not until you engage with them and hear what they have to say, listen to them to be able to know, how can I have a a conversation that's going to go somewhere and be pointed toward toward a specific direction? So, but Paul continues his gospel conversations, not only with the followers of John the Baptist, but he also continues it with the group here in verses 8 and 10. It, it, it talked about the school of Tyrannus. Made me think of Star Wars, Darth Tyrannus. Some of you know, others of you don't. But essentially, what kind of parent names your kid Tyrannus? Well, I don't think anybody really would because it's a derivative of the word tyrant. But he he's, he's, seems to have a school, a place of education. I remember when I was at Southwestern Seminary, uh, I decided foolishly, to take uh, a year's worth of Hebrew in two months. It was called Turbo Hebrew. Bad idea. And so, professor's name, Dr. Moodliar. Brilliant guy, knew his Hebrew. (laughs) By the end of the summer, we started with 100, we ended with 25 of us. They gave him the nickname, Dr. Death. I feel like this is probably this guy's nickname. Tyrannus. He's just a tyrant. He's that, he's that taskmaster at school. But Paul develops a relationship with them because he's having difficulty of continuing to stay in the synagogue because the religious leaders don't like that he's preaching that the Christ has already arrived. So he gets connected with this guy at the school of Tyrannus. And there, what we see is he has a base of operations. He has a place in which he is bringing people in 
and he's discipling them. He's educating them. He's training them. He's equipping them. He's living out Ephesians chapter 3, which is that the leaders of the church, their main prerogative isn't to go out and do all the work of the church. The leaders of the church are called to equip you for the work of ministry. So that way, as opposed to a person or a handful of people being the points of a spear going out into the community, Paul was like, if I bring them in and equip them, now I have multiple points of a spear that can really make an impact in this. And it did. It made made such an incredible impact. Can we bring that map back up? That'd be awesome. So I get to use my little pointy stick too. So what we have is this is the base of operations here in Ephesus. But as he's equipping people here, Paul's not going to Laodicea or Colossae or Sardis or Thyatira. But how do these churches get started? Most believe they got started because in Ephesus, Paul was here for about two and a half to three years. People would come into Ephesus, be equipped and trained, and hear about Paul or Jesus from Paul's teaching. And then they went back into their respective cities, and then they would proclaim Christ. And as a result, disciples were made. And when disciples are made, churches are built churches grow. That's exactly what is going on here. This is Paul's means and his strategy. It's kind of the same thing that we've wanted to do, whether it's coming here for a uh, Sunday morning worship service or Mission Point Academy on Thursday nights or our small groups. It's not we're just wanting to do things to keep you busy. Oh, I hate busyness. But it's intended that we would be equipped, built up, encouraged, spurred along together so we don't feel alone so that when you go to your place where you live, where you work and where you play, you make an impact because you've been trained and equipped in biblical truth. You are all ambassadors of Christ. You are all ministers of reconciliation. You are missionaries for Jesus if you are, in fact, in Christ. We don't want to just leave it to one or a few. We want to have all of us be on mission for this. And so I hope and pray that that's the case for us. Second thing, Jesus changes everything because of his power, because of Jesus' power. We don't have time to go deep dive into it, but what I love about this is there is this moment where people are hearing about Jesus and they want to get in on the action. Jesus seems to have this power associated with his name. Paul's been talking about him. And so you have these Jewish guys who are uh, in the business of exercising demons and they come upon one demon. And I love the statement of they say, come out in the name of Jesus, the guy that Paul talks about. And the demon says, I know Jesus, I've heard about Paul, but who in the world are you? And then he just whoops up on them. It's it's honestly kind of a funny scene. I feel bad for the guys, but it's kind of a funny scene. Seven against one, and the one just takes them out. What was missed in this moment is, look at verse 11. This is key. Underline this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God is the agent of power. Jesus, his son, is the agent of power. Sometimes what we got, get caught up into, and there's some of that teaching out there that we're like, well, Paul did have handkerchiefs and he did have aprons. And we go, if I could get the right handkerchief or apron, then I'll have the power. The power wasn't in that. It was in Jesus. It was in God. Don't, don't look to a handkerchief or to an oil or to a musical note or a quippy, alliterated sermon. None of it is powerful without Jesus. It's Jesus and him alone. His power is the power to save and to transform and change lives. So much so that the beautiful thing is when these guys get this whooping uh, from, the, from this demon-possessed guy and they get run out of there, they get whooped up on and they're running out of there just 
you know, in their birthday suit. I mean, that's going to cause some news and a sensation within the community. But did you know what they're talking about? They don't talk about the naked guy. They're talking about Jesus. Look at what it says. Look at what it says there. In verse, uh, in verse 17, it says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Jesus was at the heart of this situation when it very easily could have been like, man, did you hear about the seven sons of Sceva? I did, but I heard about Jesus. Jesus was at the heart of this the whole time. And can I just say this? As a result of this, Jesus gets popular. Jesus becomes famous. Jesus changes lives. And what you have is people here in Ephesus going, man, I'm going to place my faith in him, live for him, and not just with words, but also because of his, my faith in him, my life has changed. I'm going to be different. And how Jesus changed them is they started taking some of their uh, practices, these books of magic, and started burning them on the fire. These strongholds that were in their life. Some of you may feel like you have a stronghold in your life, and can it possibly, can I possibly overcome? You bet you can but not in your own power or strength. Jesus can change everything. Sometimes we have the faith to believe that he can save my soul for eternity, but he can't possibly help me with my struggle or addiction now. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but Jesus has the ability to break strongholds in your life. Go to him again and again. Well, as we transition in those two verses in verse 21 and 22, Essentially what we find is that Paul is just hanging out in Ephesus and things begin to, to shift a little bit. He says, I want to get to Jerusalem, but before I do, I'm going to go to Macedonia. And I eventually, after Jerusalem, I want to see Rome. And he says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Erastus and Timothy ahead of me to Macedonia. Think Greece. And you might ask the question, well, why are you doing this, Paul? It's because we find out later in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's sending these guys ahead to say, hey, you need to take up an offering. You need to get prepared because I'm going to be showing up. I'm giving you time to prepare to take up an offering. And when I show up, I'm going to collect that offering and I'm going to take it to the church in Jerusalem. But as he does so, he stays here in Ephesus as Timothy and Erastus go ahead of him. As he stays here in Ephesus, a couple of things about Ephesus that I want you to know. Ephesus was the chief port in Asia Minor. So a lot of, a lot of commerce, a lot of activity going in and through that place. And there were a couple of things that were very big deal in Ephesus. One is the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. Artemis is the Greek name. Diana is the Roman name. And this temple was actually four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. To kind of give you an idea, the Parthenon, uh, the replica is in Nashville, if you've ever been to Bicentennial Park. It's a pretty large structure. The temple of Artemis that was in in the city of Ephesus, four times that size. So it's a huge temple of worship to the goddess uh, Artemis. We don't have time to get into who she is and what all she did, but it's interesting. The other big structure they had was this theater. Can we pull that theater up? This is the theater of Ephesus. That's ginormous for today, but especially then. That would seat 25,000 people. Go ahead and show another one. Just kind of give you a different perspective. It kind of gives you an idea of like where people would be standing and where people would be sitting. But I just wanted you to kind of see that because in a second, we're going to go into this theater and we're going to see an interesting scene here in just a moment. So let's, let's look at verses uh, 23 through 27. Follow along with me. 
It says, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. See and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This is a longer point, but Jesus changes everything because to some, we find out later, he is a stumbling block, and to others, he's foolishness. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is how Jesus is perceived by a lot of people. Jesus is a stumbling block, or he is foolishness to some. Another way to put it more succinctly, Jesus offends. Either in a foolish manner or as a stumbling block. Because Jesus can redeem you, but for others, Jesus seems to be a repellent at times. We find again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that the gospel of Jesus and Jesus himself is a fragrant of either life to life or death to death. He's almost this repugnant. Just Even today, if you bring up the name of Jesus, maybe on the news, and people just all of a sudden start getting worked up because I don't want him in the conversation. Jesus, again, he changes your conversation. He changes everything about the dynamic of that. And as they are offended, I want you to see the first thing that they get offended by is their pocketbook. Jesus is getting into my finances. Jesus is messing up my finances. Because of Jesus and the spread of the gospel, people are burning their books and fleeing from the idol worship of Artemis you're messing with my business, Jesus. You need to stop it. They get offended by this. This resonates today and even resonates within the life of the church. I can tell you how many times when I would preach on the topic of stewardship and giving, and people are like, can you not talk about that because it makes me uncomfortable? And yet Jesus and scripture talk so much about our resources and our finances and our wealth because so easily they become an idol to us. He's commanded us to be generous, sacrificial, to tithe. So that it doesn't become that snare and that idol within our life. So they get so mad. I have a fun little picture for you if you saw this. They begin to see red. And so one of my favorite films is from that Pixar movie, Inside Out. And you just, they're getting so mad. And now they're not just mad about your, you're talking about my pocketbook and you're, you're taking some financial gain away. Now they're going to get mad because you're offending my traditions. You're getting in the way of something that I'm used to and comfortable with. Jesus, stop meddling. Look, look at verses 29, or verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. Think of the red guy. They began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is their tradition. You're getting in the way of my tradition, Jesus. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater. Think of that image we just saw. Dragging along Gaius and Aristocrus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the, the assembly, into that theater, the disciples wouldn't let him. He's like, there's 25,000 people in there, Paul. Not a good idea. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander. This is a Jewish guy. Since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from, from them all as he shouted for about two hours. Two hours of this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's a long time saying that same thing. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven or from Zeus? So then, so since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius... And the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man. The courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. You say, why read all of that? Well, one, because I like to read all of it. And two, it's because this is a pretty significant story for Luke to share these many verses about it. This was a potential moment of riot and chaos, and someone who doesn't even know God was able to bring calm into the situation. If it had gotten out of control, who knows what would have happened with Paul and his companions. 25,000 people in a theater just, just, just kind of just riling each other up and having that mob mentality because the traditions had been stepped on or, or offended in some form or manner. For some of you today, there might be something that resonates with you, that, that is precious to you, that sometimes when it's discussed in a church setting or a small group setting, you're like, I, I don't really want to talk about that because it affects me with my family in a particular way. So sometimes we talk about maybe human sexuality or we talk about tithing or we talk about whatever it may be and you're like, that makes me uncomfortable and I want us to say it's okay for us to read scripture and maybe be a little uncomfortable with it, but it doesn't mean that we can ignore it and that we don't study it and that we come to submission under what it teaches as opposed to just wanting to throw our traditions on top of it. Last thing and we'll be done. Jesus changes everything, but he never changes. You get that? He changes everything, but he never changes. So we must remain steadfast and true to our first love. Tiffany is my first love. I even had a hard time saying I love you to my parents and my brothers who I love dearly. I had to kind of work on that, of just letting people know that I genuinely love them. But of any of the ladies that I dated and and courted or whoever, I never shared those words because I didn't want to share those words with someone until I knew this was going to be my wife. And so Tiffany is my first love, the first person I shared this with. And believe it or not, at times, we're just like you. We can disagree because no two humans agree on everything. And at times, we can quibble and get fussed, have a tiff, if you will. But here's the thing that I found in some counseling that we had before we got married, which was be the first to humble yourself and apologize to the other. And remember, remember how you came together. Remember what drew you to one another. Because right now you're seeing red. Right now you're hurt, you're frustrated, you're offended. Go back to your first love. 
The reason why I bring that up is some of you know where I'm going, but Revelation chapter 2. Remember Paul was in Ephesus. All these other churches got started. At the end of the Bible, the apostle John gets this vision from the Lord. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, the ones that you saw on the map. And the first one he talks to is Ephesus. And this is what he says about Ephesus. He says some great things about Ephesus, but he has a very hard word for the Ephesians. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands say this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is an exceptional group of people. Not compromising on what they know to be right versus wrong. And they are working hard. They are servants. But look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I wonder if for some of you, you proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, but is someone else, something else, taking the captain's chair of your life? Jesus must always and forever be our first love. It's one thing to say it, but Tiffany and I genuinely try to mean it. That I love you, but not more than Jesus. And sometimes I don't always behave that way. Sometimes I put her first. And when I do that, she actually becomes an idol. Because my definition is, most idols are good things that we turn into God substitutes. He says, therefore remember from where you have fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. We'll stop there. Just very simply, make Jesus the number one in your life. We can do a lot of good things as individuals and as a church. We can be incredibly busy. We can do, 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 and wear ourselves out. But the best thing that we can do is balance the work of God with the worship of God. We can look at Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke and say, right now, one of the best things I could do is sit at the feet and worship Jesus before I get up and do the work of Jesus. There's time to do work. But man, enjoy that time of just being in his presence. And so what I would encourage you guys to do is just simply this, is recall your first love. Remember who Jesus is in your life. Repent if you have actually drifted from him in any way, shape, or form. And then as it says, return to your first love. Recall, remember, repent, and return. If you would, would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to finish our time with a song and a time for you to respond. I said several times this morning that Jesus changes everything. So my simple but very, I believe, relevant question is, has Jesus changed you? Can you honestly say that Jesus has changed me? You're not trying to be a good moral person. The son of the living God has come into your life, and that's why you're different. And if he has changed you, 
Do you obey them? Have you followed in believer's baptism? If he has changed you, have you do you, do you share him with others? Do you live for him, love him, abide in him, rest in him, sit with him? Man, it's so easy in my life to get so busy. I know I'm preaching to the choir. There's so many of you out there. You're working hard. You're so busy. But man, oh man, let's not be guilty of not sitting at the feet of Jesus every day for even just a relatively short amount of time so that we can be in his presence. Because when we get into the presence of Jesus, he changes us. When we come to worship together, when you leave, you should be a little different than when you came in today. Because Jesus changes things. Now, he may have stepped on your toes, and that hurts, and that's how you're changed. But maybe he encouraged you today in some form or fashion. But he changes things. He changes people. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. And again, just asking you that question. Is he your life, or is he an accessory? Has he changed you? And if you're someone who's saying, I don't know, maybe, I'm struggling, I'll be right up here. I'd love to just, I, I'll pray for you. I'll pray over you. If someone's with me and you're like, do I have enough time for somebody to pray for me? Raise your hand up. One of our elders will see you. They'll pray for you. But I know that this life is really hard sometimes. We need one another. You desire to repent. You desire to return to your first love. But sometimes it's just good to have a friend next to you to say I'm here with you. And maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Let's, let's, let's return to Jesus. Let's live for him. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, before we leave, as opposed to just getting up and going through the motions of singing a song, that we would spend some time talking to you, sitting at your feet and worshiping you. And I pray this in your name, your son's name. Amen. If you guys would stand, sing, pray. If you need a visit with somebody, I'll be right here. I'd love to talk to you.